you know what I was thinking and someone kind of suggested? <laughs> yeah. Is if we got hired to run the official podcast of, say, the New York Philharmonic or okay. the San Francisco Symphony or the LA Philharmonic. <laughs> I mean, that'd be kind of cool, right? But that would be pretty cool. What I would be curious about is what if we <laughs> what if we just went rogue and just started the official New York Philharmonic <laughs> podcast? <laughs> and just started doing our own interviews and getting guests on the podcast and talking about topics. How long could we last? Maybe they would just roll with it and link to it and promote it. <laughs> and, and meanwhile, behind the scenes, like, yeah, there's these two guys that are apparently doing a podcast, but it's pretty good. And it's really engaging our content a lot. So, yeah, where, where's the harm? The, yeah. the real question is, would we keep the name Impolite to Listen, the official New York mm. Philharmonic podcast? I think it'd be cool if we started a second one and we ran both in tandem, um, <laughs> just in case it falls apart. I mean, get sued. And we have to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we have something to fall back on, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but how great would that be? Yeah, we just we just go out and do it. You know, I mean, that's the entrepreneurial mindset, right? Don't ask there for permission. Yeah, yeah. Ask for forgiveness. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Yeah, we, we can go totally shameless. Like, uh, doesn't the San Francisco Symphony have a have a series called Keeping Score? Yep, yep. That they, that they do online. So we could just start a podcast that we call Scorekeeping or something. The official podcast <laughs> of the San Francisco Symphony. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's a great idea. I think it's a really great idea. Yeah, call me in. It's funny, though. Will people who listen to this podcast now ever trust a San Francisco Symphony podcast? They'll just think it's us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, we've like ruined their credibility forever. So that, so that if they ever do start a podcast, it has to be through us now. Because <laughs> no one else will be. <laughs> yeah, checkmate, San Francisco. <laughs> Where should we start here? Um, I, I guess it's, it's probably um, good to start with the Reddit. Um, Impolite to Listen is finally on Reddit. If, if any of our listeners are on there, I'm not sure. Um, what the overlap is between between our, our listeners and Reddit users, but um, I've been using Reddit for the last two weeks now, maybe, and I, I've been really liking it. Yeah. I think it's a it's a really cool social network. I know I'm probably like 20 years late to the party, but um, so uh, yeah, it's it's r slash impolite to listen, easy to remember, um, and mm-hmm. yeah, we'll start posting things you know related to the show there, and if you want to come there and um, and discuss episodes or anything else, really. Um, that's where you can find us. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Reddit and have been for quite a while. People that are new to Reddit, I can understand their hesitation and reservations. It was kind of a shit show until seven <laughs> or eight years ago. <laughs> so um, it, it was just there was a lot of a lot of noise, and that's putting it politely <laughs> yeah so but yeah reddit is really great now and especially for podcasts because it's a really cool place to engage in conversations and have discussions in a really cool exciting dynamic way and reddit still operates this unique uh it fills this unique void left by all these other social media mediums that um that is really cool it's a really cool place the way i describe reddit is it's a giant convention a giant conference and there's a conference table 
on basically every topic you could possibly think of. So there's one on asteroid news. There's one on New Zealand ping pong leagues. There's <laughs> there's everything. And you can hop between them as you please and find ones, find things interesting that you never would have thought of. And then podcasts, a lot of, a lot of podcasts really embrace Reddit because it's a really cool place to have a cool backstage conversation with the listeners after the show. So I think that's what it'll turn into and who knows what else. So come check us out. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, like the backstage chat. Uh, I like that. Yeah, or at the bar across the street. Yeah, right, yeah. Like we packed up our instruments and we're, we're n- nipping out for a quick one. Cool. Um, so so there you is... have a correction, right? <laughs> yeah, this is, again, a very minor correction, but I couldn't live with myself if I didn't make it. So in the last episode, I brought up the legendary pianist, performer, entertainer, comedian, Victor Borga. And yeah, just true icon of the 20th century and one of the funniest guys ever. I said he was Swedish. (laughs) (laughs) I noticed that. Yeah, even when I said that, I'm like, oh, I think that's right. Okay, fine. All right. And I just moved on with the conversation. He is Danish. (laughs) He is from the fine country of Denmark. So I... I apologize to all, all of our Danish listeners and sorry, Swedish ones. I'm sure you'd love to claim them, but um, I was probably confusing him with the great Swedish chess player, Magnus Carlsen. Oh, is he not Norwegian? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I was saying that just to piss off all of our Norwegian listeners. It's <laughs> uh, pretty good. Yeah, I, I was I was gonna say when you when I heard you calling Victor Borga Swedish, it, it was funny because uh, you usually people get Sweden and Norway mixed up, but this must be one of the few times that someone got Sweden and Denmark mixed up. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I, I have no excuse, I, I guess. <laughs> I mean, the experience of making a podcast is the experience of continuously hearing yourself speak in the past and and being just you know being like, who is this idiot? <laughs> and why does he sound so much like I do? Right. right. <laughs> yeah, that's how it feels like when we're editing these episodes. <laughs> Denmark, I always thought, got the last laugh when it came to the Scandinavian countries, because they own Greenland. Oh. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. Of course. That's pretty good. Not for long, baby. So I see on our topic list for today, Streeter, our idea list, we were thinking about covering a current event or two in the classical music space. Mm-hmm. So I have have on our notes here, you wanted to bring up Keith Jarrett, which I actually don't, yeah, I'm not quite sure what this, what this is going to be about. So yeah, what you got? Well, um, there was just an, an article, I think it was in the New York Times, we'll, we'll link to it. Um, he hasn't been performing for the last couple of years. Um, okay. And want to maybe take us a step back and, and oh, sure. remind us who Keith Jarrett is? So yeah, so, so Keith Jarrett is, is this, he's this wonderful American pianist who is most known for his, for his jazz playing, but he also does a lot of classical. And um, 
he's known for these um, crazy sort of long solo concerts where he would yeah, just yeah. He, he had no idea what he was going to play and he was just going to you know come on stage and improvise for um, an hour and a half and just sort of take over your mind for a long span of time but in any case he, he, he hasn't been performing for a couple of years and, um, and hasn't said anything about it but he recently spoke out for the first time and, um, and said that he, he suffered two strokes in 2018 and, oh, jeez, um, I had no idea. Actually. Yeah, and, and he has basically been um, in hospital, um, I, think, I think in and out of hospital since then, and um, hasn't, hasn't sort of gained um, the ability to play again, and has also sort of started to forget tunes and stuff. It's, it's all very sad. Um, so, so basically, oh, no. he, he's not coming back. Um, he, he seems to be, like, you know, alive and well otherwise, but um, I don't think okay. performing on the piano is in the books anymore for him, which is really sad. Gotcha. So, um, oh, that is damn. Yeah, yeah. He's a tremendous artist, tremendous jazz pianist, and then has really made a name for himself in the classical world as well. I always loved him in the same way. I always loved Wynton Marsalis on trumpet. He's hopped between jazz and classical in a way not many have been able to. Yeah, I certainly think those two recordings that I mentioned with the viola da gamba sonatas with Kim Kardashian and the flute sonatas uh, with Michaela Petri um, by Bach, mm. both of these. Um, I think his yeah. keyboard playing on those is phenomenal, and for my money, it's the best. It, like those are my favorite recordings of those pieces because of Keith Jarrett on the on the keyboard in the back. Um, I think I think he okay, plays them nice. with such vitality and creativity. Um, it's it's really great. Um, yeah, is any anything specific? Anything specific in his playing that you think stands out or sets him apart? I think he he. It's really hard to 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 talk about it, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll link to it and, and you can, you can yeah. take a listen. Um, he just finds the perfect, uh, the, the perfect style for, for Bach, I think. There's, there's um, okay. an absolute rhythmic vitality to it. Um, it. It has such a strong backbone. Um, and yet within, within this sort of relentless policy, he, he seems totally free. Um, it's it's. Mm. I sound stupid saying it, but it's at time. It, at the same time, it's it's. It seems sort of uh, relentlessly. The the it marches forward re- relentlessly, and yet it seems like each step is completely fluid, and and within it, it seems timeless. Like it seems like he he is taking yeah. forever within every beat and being so creative. You know the way that he would um, do his his sort of improvisations that became compositions. Um, you know he would always talk about uh, about how Bach and Beethoven were were great improvisers, and um, and the moment that the composition got set down on paper was was an arbitrary moment, really. Um, if you think about hmm. the process of creating something in your mind and hearing it and then playing it on the piano, um, or the keyboard, whatever. Um, and then yeah. and then writing it down. Um, I, I think he he really tapped into into that um, mindset that that Bach had as an improviser and a, a compo- like a composer who's an improviser. Um, so I, I think when he plays Bach, there's an affinity. It's, it's similar to the way that Gould play, plays Bach. Um, there, there's a sort of um, it's a it's a deep it's a deeply subjective 
look at Bach, but it, but the way that he plays it is so convincing that it, it almost has a veneer of objectivity. You know, I love it when yeah, people play yeah. like that. When you when you hear something and you think this is how it has to go, it can't go any other way. And yet, it's it's a highly idiosyncratic way that he's playing it. Um, yeah, that, oh, that to me is a mark of a yeah. That to me is a mark of a performer who who is also thinking as a composer. One of the great things about Keith Jarrett is kind of what you were getting at. Um, when you would go hear him or go see him perform live, more than anything else, you were going to see a concert of Keith Jarrett, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of last time, what we were talking about with Louis Armstrong, right? You're going to see the performer, the entertainer, the musician and artist themselves. To a lesser degree was the importance of the actual music they were playing. And Keith Jarrett was certainly like that, or was, no, is, but as you said, or as I learned, um, he's retiring from performing. He, he, he was the, the star of his own show in, in, in a cool way. It's also funny, on a, on a similar note, it's funny that he's the only person that I know of who other people play his improvisations publicly. Oh, funny. Like, I, know, I know it's a thing to, to sort of transcribe solos to study them, but yeah, yeah. Um, I think there are a couple of concerts that he gave. I think one from, from I think one of them is called famously like the, the Cold Concert. He, he gave it in Germany. And um, um, I think that one is actually played, if you search for Keith Jarrett, the Cold, the Cold Concert, you will actually find other people performing this 90-minute improvisation that Keith Jarrett did. Right, um, interesting. Oh, you know, that's because because at the end of it, he had stumbled upon he real t- you know it wasn't just this improvisation. He real time composed this piece that other people actually are like, oh yeah, I'm gonna play this thing now. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I don't know. It, it boggles. I, I, as someone who like struggles with sort of just Im- improvising a, a, a tune, it, it really boggles the mind how anyone can even do that. Yeah, there's a few insane. There's a few famous solos like that that are almost a rite of passage that everyone learns in a way. Um, Clifford Brown, the great trumpet player, Clifford Brown, his solo to Joy Spring, every trumpet player learns that solo. It just, it's a masterpiece. His he improvised it at the recording studio, and it's funny. There's, I forget what take that was that they did that one, but you hear the alternate takes, and the solo sounds completely different because again, it was improvised. <laughs> But I, I, I remember back in the days of <laughs> CD players, my, my trumpet teacher, yeah, so pre like free music on the internet, pre like Google as we now know it, there's still search engines, but Google as we now know it, uh, it was a rite of passage to transcribe it by ear and then play it. So I remember sitting with a CD player mm-hmm. in my trumpet and manuscript paper and hitting the back button a few seconds to transcribe the notes. and. And uh, John Coltrane's solo to Giant Steps is, an, is another one of those that, again, people will actually play that solo verbatim. <laughs> and, yeah. it, and then these Keith Jarrett concerts are, are in the same camp. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. just artistry on display. But the fact that it's so long is, is the crazy. It's, it's yeah, the yeah, that's the thing, too. Yeah. I think there's something to be said for music that sounds music that sounds improvised but really isn't um an, an example you may disagree with this but an example i do think is a lot of the music of debussy hmm. um mm-hmm. we'll take extremely an extremely famous example which is probably a two of the afternoon of a fawn 
mm-hmm. with one of the most famous flute solos of all time. <laughs> Uh, yep. Yeah, it's a beautiful piece of music. And there's a great Leonard Bernstein lecture talking about it. When you listen to it, it can kind of sound improvised and ambiguous. But as Leonard Bernstein details in this Harvard lecture, it is actually the complete opposite. It's really carefully constructed in a masterpiece of structure that is designed and built to give it an ambiguous effect. But there's nothing ambiguous about the music. I'm I'm glad you said that because because that shows a, a sort of deeper understanding of Debussy than I think a lot of people <laughs> have, and it, it, it's one of my biggest, um, you know, quote unquote pet peeves. Uh, I forget who who's it that says I don't have pet peeves. I have things that fucking piss me off. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're glad I brought up uh, your pet peeves about Debussy and people who listen to it. Uh, oh yeah, actually, it's the people who play it. Um, or play I think it, yeah. one one of the paradoxes. Um, is is that something like JBC sounds improvised and it, um, I think it leads a lot of people to, to play it very freely, hmm. you know, because they think, oh, it's this wonderful impressionistic music. It just, it's all about the sort of thing that the music is implying, you know? Right. And it's this, you know, they luxuriate in the, in the sort of am, am, ambiguity of JBC. Yeah. But in fact, you know, JBC was a, was a, you know, very strict mathematician with his music. Uh, you know, his notes were like galley slaves to him. And um, the music is, is rigorously structured, you know, use, using mathematics often. Yeah, yeah, he, he played um, games with that, yeah. Yeah, and and, and um, extremely precise. And then something like, like Bach, actually, or like in Baroque music generally, I think people play that. They think, you know, it's very stuffy music, so, so it's played in a, they play it in a very rigorous way. But actually that music is a lot more free than Debussy. Hmm. Um, you know, that, that music deserves to be played with things, you know, you can sort of mix some rhythms around, add a lot of ornaments, be very free and creative in your in your approach to that music, because that music was actually improvised a right. lot of the times, you know. Whereas Debussy is is rigorously structured, and and um, you know, I think it's a it's a maybe rite of passage is the the word of the day, but um, <laughs> I think it's a rite of passage for for any person to take a lesson on Debussy and go to their teacher with a sort of free and sort of loose interpretation of it. And, the, and you know, the teacher just shoots you down and says, no, I know it sounds like this music, uh, you know, you can be creative with it, but this music more than other music, actually, you need to follow it to a T. Yeah, right, right. I mean, you know, even I look at, at manuscript paper, or sorry, even look at the sheet music, compare Bach to Debussy. There's way more ink on the WC sheet music. There's an instruction for, I mean, instructions for dynamics, volume, uh, speed, on, in his piano books, right? Specific pedaling instructions, where where to use pedal and where to not, uh, articulation, ornamentation, right? Where Bach, it's just kind of, it's pretty bare bones, right? It's kind of, it's left a lot more up to the performer to interpret it. WC is very structured, to the contrary. Again, you think impressionism, you think you know, all fluffy, dreamy skates, like, okay, fine. You can think what you want, but <laughs> when you play it. <laughs> yeah, I think people think because the music sort of implies an impression, 
that they can be a lot more free with it. What they forget is that the 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 impression that is being implied is actually a very specific one. So you know, <laughs> Davis will be very highly specific in the in the impression that he wants to create in the listener to the point of saying, you know, this should sound like, uh, you know, moonlight on a terrace. Mm-hmm. You know, that is the kind of detailed instruction that you'll never find in Bach. <laughs> right, <on>. right. <laughs> um, you know, and yet, and yet, when people say, when people see that kind of a, a title to a piece or that kind of an instruction in the score, people think, "Oh, how creative! I'm, I'm going to be very creative myself in the way that I play this, and it's going to be completely, you know, my my Debussy." And it's like, no, 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 it's very, very precise. Exactly, but, exactly. Yeah, I always um, considered, or. I kind of consider Claude Debussy the first modern composer. Absolutely, yeah. I think he, on t- on two fronts, he he at once was um, a sort of mix between, uh, not a mix. Uh, he was like a bridge going from from sort of nineteenth century tonality to twentieth century atonality, right? Mm-hmm, He's sure. in that sort of group of composers like um, like Wagner as well, who were right at that sort of end. Uh, who who are sort of in that breaking point, the, the point where, where tonality was kind of um, breaking apart. So I think he, he was right on that cusp. Yeah, so it's funny, in so much of music, up until the point of Debussy and Wagner, as you mentioned, and the late, the late Romantics, so the late 19th century, music was all, the subject of musical ideas and melodies were always notes or themes or, or pitch-based, right? But... Debussy kind of took a different flavor on that. And again, the piece Prelude to the Afternoon of Buffon is a brilliant example of that, where the subject isn't really the melody, right? It's the, it's the interval of the tritone that is, is the idea itself, that the whole, what is it, like a 10-minute long piece or so? Mm-hmm. That whole piece is based off of. It's not a theme. It's not a melody. It's an interval, the distance between two notes that Debussy plays with. And again, it's a masterpiece of structure, that piece. It sounds, it might, again, yeah, it might have a dreamy effect or feel to it, but it's because of the, of how meticulous Debussy was in developing that work of music that you get that effect. Yeah, that's well said, I think. And that's um, a very 20th century idea. It's a yeah, very 20th century right. idea. There was also the way that, that, um, that Debussy... He used silence a lot, and he also he he also mm, was sure, was yeah. not afraid to imply um, extra musical sounds using using music. So there are moments in his um, in his opera, um, Pelias and Melisande, um, who uh, sorry in that opera there there are moments where he uses the strings very quietly to to almost sound like rustling leaves, you know. Um, it's there's, there's nothing happening except for the strings playing this thing and it just sort of sounds like a still night where the, the leaves are rustling to go to your point i mean that 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 effect can only be made in one very precise way there's not a lot of interpretation happening on the part of the musician there you know it's it's right. a very precise thing that he's looking for and it's a very um, meticulous way of composing um, and yet it leads to something that sounds so free and improvisatory and but it's not um, 
Right. Even as you said, the use of silence, <laughs> piggybacking on the past two episodes. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's a very 20th century, 20th century idea for a, quote, 19th century composer. Yeah, yeah. Um, John yeah. Cage and stuff. <laughs> yeah, like we, um, I think we said in the last episode or maybe two episodes ago that he had that one um, that one line that was something like uh, like all sounds or a, I think any sounds in any successions. It, sorry, he said somewhere yeah, that that's right. uh, that any sounds in any succession are henceforth free to be used in a musical continuity or something like that. I may not have gotten it verbatim, but. Um, yeah, I, I think that that also is very 20th century. And without that, I don't think I mean, it's not it's not as it's simplistic to say that, you know, without that declaration, the 20th century wouldn't have happened. <laughs> but uh, I think he 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 freed he freed he freed composers after who came after him from the sort of uh, aesthetic constraints that, that, you know, that Davis was born into. Yeah, it's funny, too. Um, yeah, the, it's that I think in you might know this better than I do with the beginning of Prelude to an Afternoon of a Fawn by Claude Debussy. It's seven beats of silence. Is that right? Uh, I'm in, pretty sure in the middle it's of that. six. I also love um, the recording on YouTube of, I think it's the Frankfurt Radio Symphony playing, um, playing Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn. Hmm. The first 50 comments is the flute player looks just like Debussy. <laughs> oh, I got to find this. <laughs> <laughs> like, like all the comments are, is that Debussy on flute? Is <laughs> Wait, do you, do you want if I take a second to actually try to find yeah, this on yeah, my phone please. real quick? <laughs> he does. Yeah, no, that's incredible. <laughs> I wonder if he always looks like that or if he like groomed himself to look like that for this concert. <laughs> no, I've checked out a few more of the performances. He, he always looks like that. Um, okay. Yeah, but uh, no, and again, that piece, for those who haven't listened to that piece, that is, that's, that piece is in my list of favorite pieces of all time, like my top 10 or five. It's just, every time I listen to that piece, I learn something new and, uh, yeah, it's it's just so gorgeous. It's so beautiful. I was going to ask if flute players like that piece. I know just because all flute players learn that excerpt and learn how to play that solo so much. I wonder if you're you're just sick of it or if you still like it. I I can't speak for for flutists, but I'm certainly not sick of it. It's I think it's one of the great pieces of music. Um, yeah. Okay. It's it's the you know it's it's a it's one of those pieces that is uh, endlessly pleasurable to to. To play and listen to, it's really fun to play for for flute and piano as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Really, really difficult. Um, you know, the the breathing, the breathing in the in the opening solos is tough, but you know, the breathing in the 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 flute piano arrangement, you know, it's it's an exhausting ten minutes. Um, yeah, I believe it. But I, I'm certainly not I'm certainly not sick of sick of the piece. Um, but I don't know. I I mean, I'm not. I'm also not that old and i i don't um, <laughs> play play you know in an orchestra that does this you know 10 times in a single season or something like that so you might have right. to talk to like a 70 year old you know grizzled orchestra veteran and ask him or her or ask that as a claude wc flute player himself ask this guy yeah <laughs> <laughs> ask wc himself he plays flute apparently 
I, I was gonna say I think people should check out the the I don't I don't know this I think it's one of his more famous pieces but I'm not I'm not so certain um, the sonata for for flute harp and viola oh yeah that's a really great piece um, yeah that's that is um, probably my favorite piece of his and it's so fun to play and it's so fun to listen to um, it's so um, it's it's delightfully um, modern as well mm-hmm. um, yeah. It's almost it's almost pointillistic in the way that he mm. he sort of has um, he has melodies weaving in and out of the instruments, um, sort of completing each other's phrases and um, entering deceptively. It's hard to describe, but um, people should absolutely um, listen to it. Um, I think it might be the last thing that he wrote before he died. Oh, he was planning a series of sonatas for odd instruments, for odd instrument ca- combinations, and I don't think he ever finished that. And this may be the only one that he end up finishing i'm not certain about that but gotcha. it is it's really beautiful and it's certainly you know some, some of the most fun i've ever had on stage is playing this piece That's a really fantastic piece. It's a really, really great one. It's funny what I was going to say with that piece, the prelude to the afternoon of a fawn. It's one of my favorite pieces of music, and it's a piece I will most likely never play because there's no trumpet part in it, and it's there's piano arrangement, so maybe I, I won't play it on piano or something. But really, the piece in its essence is for orchestra, and the, there's there's a French horn part, but there's, yeah. there's no trumpet part. Um, we sh- we should um, we should learn the the flute piano arrangement and play it together. That could be someday. really cool, actually. That could be really cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I have no idea how how notorious the piano part is. I can only imagine. Like w- whenever there's flute piano arrangements of like orchestrations, I feel bad for the pianists because we're just out here like playing the flute part basically, <laughs> and then the piano is just like playing the rest of the orchestra. I yeah, always feel yeah. a little bit bad. <laughs> yeah, because we um, get all the credit at the end. <laughs> So back on kind of French Impressionism, for those who love Debussy, I I mean, another composer I can't not talk about that I've always adored is Eric Satie. Mm-hmm. And who, yeah, I mean, I guess this whole late late 19th century, late 1800s era was such an interesting time for music. It, again, as we've mentioned, it was the beginning or like the beginning rumblings of what would, would be the explosion and divergence that we would come to call 20th century music. 20th century music you had all these opposites going on at the same time you had Wagner right which was writing these grand orchestrated operas and would be the foundation of modern film music in in a sense so you had these huge orchestras huge the ring cycle is what 18 hours long that whole opera or something yeah then you had Eric Satie who wrote some of the most intimate delicate music ever written
who called himself what a gymnopedist a gymnopedist yeah yeah <laughs> no one really knows what that means I, I, the 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 gymnopedie was a, a sort of dance in ancient greek uh, i think performed by sort of you know by naked young boys because you know it was ancient greece and that's kind of what they did back then um but no one no one really exactly knows what a gymnopedie is and certainly not what a gymnopedist is in the context of music um but that was satie you know i mean he he was delightfully weird he lived in a, a, a suburb of Paris. In the burbs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, he, he lived in the suburb of Paris. And, uh, you know, this might be apocryphal, but, but I, I think what he would do for his, like, quote-unquote work day is that he would wake up and walk to Paris and, you know, stop off at various cafes and chat with people and have drinks and, uh, you know, in between write some music uh, and then as soon as he got to Paris, he would turn around and walk back and stop at cafes and talk to people and have drinks and write some more music. <laughs> and that was how he worked, which I think is, oh, that's, is delightful. That's interesting. <laughs> um, Good for him. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, and he would always carry an umbrella around, y- even when it was you know a clear, sunny day. <laughs> he seems like the most charming person ever. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, his music reflects that in a way, right? I mean, I don't find yeah. any of this surprising, what you're saying. <laughs> that's the thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Right. Um, I love how he referred to to his music as he referred to his music as furniture music. He did, yeah, right. yeah. Right. To, again, it's it's the the opposite of Wagner, who wanted his music to be the sort of grand, you know, dramatic event, and Satie and Satie would just say, "No, it's just it's you know it's background noise." Yeah, it's like cocktail music. Just yeah. have it on the background. It's like it's like furniture, right, or like wallpaper. It should just be there, but not the subject of attention. And yeah. and I love that. And his music is is really charming and nice i mean the gymnopedies are are pretty famous yeah and yeah those that's like really great music to have on at a party actually again post-covid <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, yeah it's such charming music um that's some of my go-to music to just have on in the background if it's a rainy day hmm. actually it's, yeah no for it's sure it's really nice um yeah. along with the along with the nonsense i think those also yeah go yeah well, but um yeah, he's yeah. certainly one of those composers that, that is totally singular in the way that he sounds. You know, when you listen to right. Eric Satie, there's nothing else that sounds like Satie. It's, it's completely yeah. unique. And surprisingly difficult to play. Like, uh, you know, it's really hard to play the, the, the gymnopedie. Um, it's, uh, you know, like if you play an, an arrangement for, you know, say flute and guitar um, mm-hmm. or flute and piano, um, it's, it's surprisingly hard to just play something that is so simple uh, in a way that's, you know, beautiful. Yeah, so the the first gymnopedie is actually it's hard on piano. Again, some real professional pianists are probably laughing at me, but but it's definitely harder than you think it is. We'll yeah. say that because you're doing these. Yeah, but the right hand isn't too bad. It's just a floating melody, almost like a Chopin style melody on top. But the left hand is doing these big octave leaps, mm. and you're, you have to stretch your hands in these really weird ways to hit these very open chords. So you're doing this, uh, these really weird shapes with your hands. You have to play it piano or pianissimo. It's very soft and quiet. And if you miss one note, it's just dead obvious. <laughs> Everyone knows. Yeah. yeah. It's not 
it's not a big Franz list sort of thing where if you miss a few notes, it'll get, it'll, it'll probably get covered up. But this is just, it's, uh, it's so delicate and exposed, I'd say. So, yeah, the, yeah. I think that's, that's more the kind of stuff that gives experienced musicians nightmares. At least it's, I can only speak for myself. So that's, that's certainly the kind of things that gives me nightmares, you know, something that's a yeah. flurry of notes. You know, I can learn notes, but I'm mm-hmm. not beyond uh, messing a note up. You know, no one is. So right, actually, right. you know, I don't have a problem with, with pieces that, that are very note heavy because, uh, again, I can learn notes, but pieces that, that, are, that are like this where any mistake is, is painfully obvious and just, you know, it makes, your, it makes the entire performance sort of dead on arrival as soon as you miss a note. Um, right. You know, oh, absolutely. that's the kind of stuff that makes up my nightmares. Right. It's a bit more terrifying. Um, it, I know Alton Brown, the great Food Network chef and stuff, <laughs> when, when he's ever asked, you know, what's your, is there any dish or cuisine that you fear most that you dread having to make that's so complicated and complex? He goes, honestly, it's, it's the really simple things that you worry about. Yeah. Um, he's like, I'm worried about I'll, every here and there, I'll really screw up making a pot of coffee. <laughs> he said, it's, <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds silly, but it's really the simple, basic things that you worry about getting wrong. Because when you get it wrong, it's very wrong. <laughs> yeah. And again, with this very intimate, delicate music of Eric Satie that was being written in the 1880s, this was going on at the same time. Other European composers were writing the biggest, grandest symphonies ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> when you yeah. had Verdi and uh, Wagner, uh, Mahler, um, uh, Bruckner. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's it's kind of cool they had both of these going on at the same time. And again, a, a preview of what was to come, I guess, too. In addition to the innovations each of them brought as composers, and the new takes on melody and harmony and all this, in addition to each of these new innovations, the whole idea that there was no longer going to be one unified voice or unified style or idea as there had been in romantic music, classical, baroque. Now there's going to be multiple paths being taken at the same time by different composers. That was a preview of what, what was to come in the 20th century, where there was no one single style in the 20th century. It was extremely varied across all composers. Yeah. So it was a preview of what was to come in so many ways. Yeah, it's, that's a good way of putting it. I think with, with Satie, just one final thing. This doesn't need to yeah. be, this maybe should be caught anyway. But, um, you know, I, I think it, he, he's someone He's someone who, um, how, how, how to say this? He's someone who pissed people off for the sake of pissing people off. Um, and, and, you know, that, that makes him a modern artist, um, you know, stuck in the 19th century over there. Um, you know, I, I think a, a lot of... Right, right, you know, like in, in, modern, in modern times, to, to say something, to say something like, you know, art, the, the purpose of art can be simply to provoke. It doesn't have to be mm-hmm. beautiful. It doesn't have to be anything, you know. 
sure. if it okay. pisses you off and gets you gets you mad about something, that is that is a, a legitimate uh, point to this piece of art. You know, um, sure. yeah. you may not like it, and it may be like shit, uh, and you may say it's like the worst piece of art ever conceived. But the point is that it's trying to get you to to think about something, um, and and mm-hmm. Sati, you know, would would do that um, all over the place. Um, he, he yeah. would write. He would write music specifically so that people can listen to it and say, "This is not music." And <laughs> um, yeah, he, he would yeah, write pieces so he that was, were parodies of contemporary composers, right? Right, like, right, Brookner right. and stuff, right? So, um, um, so yeah, he had a little bit of Dada in him, I guess, too. So uh, this is sort of linked to what we've been talking about with late 1800s music, uh, specifically Wagner. But we'll come back to that link in a second, which is I think it's really interesting right now to watch with this global pandemic and everything going on, how so many arts organizations, arts organizations are trying different things to to stay afloat. And of course, it's, it's not a good thing, right? Because this pandemic and coronavirus is putting a lot of great artistic organizations in really tough financial circumstances, but... And musicians, by, needless yeah, to say. Yeah, yeah, right, right, <laughs> and artists. Yeah. Um, but it's, in, in, it's interesting to, to see how some of them are trying to innovate their way out of it, which I think is the mindset you should and kind of have to have. Uh, for example, I like how Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra in Amsterdam, the great world-renowned orchestra based in Amsterdam, uh, for the recent concerts they've had, where they have socially distanced concerts, where it's just a pod, like, they took out a good two-thirds of their seats, so it's just these clumps of seats, and it's like six, six people in, in a section, and they're all spaced apart, but in the empty spaces between these seat sections are drink tables, <laughs> so now they allow, which they didn't before, they allow drinks and obviously alcohol into the concert hall, and encourage people to drink during the concert, and they have these cute little drink tables. I, I think that's that's awesome and a trend I hope expands. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's cool. Um, of course, you see museums doing uh, virtual tours uh, with VR and on Google, on the internet and stuff. So there's, there's a few ways companies are doing this. Um, but the San Francisco Ballet did something really cool, I thought. Yeah, this was earlier this summer. This summer. Well, it's, it's fall time. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It was like a month or two ago. <laughs> we'll say that. Um, but what they did is they filmed some of their dancers dancing around the city of San Francisco as a cool, a really well done video and choreographed in a really cool way. It's choreographed by Natalie Portman's husband, Benjamin Milpied, who's... I wonder if he's more famous for being Natalie Portman's husband than he is for being a great choreographer. Uh, for sure, anyways. he's more famous for being Natalie Portman's husband. It's right, not, right. Not even a competition. <laughs> I mean, well, because they met when he was working on Black Swan, right? Oh, okay, I Oscar see. For yes, that's how they met and things. And Anyway, awesome, awesome stuff, awesome stuff. Uh, and... Um, yeah, so it was choreographed by, by him, which is awesome. And it's, it's a beautifully filmed eight or ten minute video of several dancers from the San Francisco Ballet dancing around the streets of San Francisco. And it's really great, all that stuff. But the thing that just put it over the top for me 
was the music they chose to set it to, which is Send a More from Alfred Hitchcock's masterpiece Vertigo with music by Bernard Herrmann. one of the most beautiful pieces of music ever. I mean, it's, we're talking about beautiful music. This is just, it's a really cool part in the movie too. Um, I won't spoil it, but if you haven't watched Vertigo, you absolutely should. Um, so one of the great films ever. It's such a brilliant piece of music and so gorgeous, but also eerie and tragic. I love how this, this video of dancers from the SF Ballet dancing around the city the music they choose from it is from arguably the greatest film ever filmed in San Francisco, filmed and set in San Francisco, which is Hitchcock's Vertigo. So it just hits so many chords with me, uh, pun intended, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's so many chords with me in so many ways. And um, yeah, it, it's just great. I'm curious what your thoughts on it were. Yeah, you sent this to me last night and I watched it just before we started recording. Um, yeah. So no, you, you didn't send this to me last night. You sent me the. You sent me. The, I sent it right before we started recording. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that makes me feel better. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so I watched it right before we. So so you sent this to me and I, and I watched it right before we started recording this and um, I thought it was really really cool. Um, yeah. First of all, I mean, I, I totally second second the Vertigo um, talk. I, I think that Vertigo might be my favorite Hitchcock. Um, I think it's it, it it is it's certainly it's certainly you yeah. know you can't you can't go wrong with saying that. Um right, right. You'll you'll always get the tip of the hat for saying yeah. that. Yeah. Even um, for saying it's your favorite movie, you 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 know, I don't think anyone would fault you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, G- Jimmy Stewart kills it. I think Kim Novak does a really brilliant job. Yeah. Yeah, I think she 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 does a great job, but um what I thought was really cool about this this video is that um it seems like in this, you know, for the last, um, I don't know, it seems like for the last six, six, seven months or so, um, everyone, like all, all, like every kind of artist and art institution has been um, trying to find a way to be relevant to the times. Hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, like obviously they're trying to stay afloat and find creative ways of doing that. But, but I think um, th- there's, there's a lot of, of people trying to, trying to sort of, comment on the moment um and I, I don't necessarily think i don't necessarily like that trend because I, I don't i don't think the purpose of art should be to to sort of always um provide a, a mirror to the moment and there, i think there's some things like music that you know have pretty much nothing to say about about something like a global pandemic um so it's it seems a little bit sort of embarrassing when people try to make that happen. But I think one of the places, I think one of the arts that that really can say something interesting and beautiful about about isolation is is dance, right? Hmm. Um, and I think uh, the the you know the, they obviously have this, this gorgeous music in the back, but but I think the the way that the the choreography is is set up and and the and the dancers, you know, they're obviously they must be highly successful, accomplished artists but um it's so beautiful and i thought it, was, it really was one of the only pieces of art that i've seen since you know the pandemic started um where where i'm thinking you know this is actually a relevant comment from a, from like an, an artist 
you know, made by artists that, that, yeah. that is, um, that is like moving, you know, the, the way, the well sort of fun. way that they move around in the space and, and the sort of, um, you know, they have these moments where, where the dancer is doing, uh, you know, they have like sort of flights of fancy and then, and then the sort of camera pans away to like a long shot and, and the dancer is just sort of looking around in total isolation. Um, again, it's, stupid to say it out loud you should just watch this video that we'll put in the show notes right. but um like i said it's one of the few times that i've seen something coming out of this you know you know hell of the last half half a year where i'm thinking oh yeah this is this is relevant and beautiful you know it's not just it's not it's not just trying to be relevant for the sake of it really well put yeah really well put and yeah it's yeah there's something about it where it's every artists involved in this is exceptional. The dancers, whoever filmed it, I mean, the choreographer, the orchestra. Here's the part that blew my mind. Um, if, you look at the, if you look at the credits, the orchestra who's playing the Bernard Herrmann score to Vertigo um, in, in, this, in this video is members of the San Francisco Ballet Orchestra. And the person who mixed it is Martin West, the conductor of the San Francisco Ballet. So you probably thought this recording was recorded like in, as an orchestra, no, these are all individually submitted and recorded parts that were later synced up. Yeah. But it was done so well. It sounds just like a full orchestra playing, right? It, do, it doesn't sound like a bunch of, it doesn't sound like 50 parts were recorded individually and then synced up in the audio. No, this sounds like from the movie or something or maybe even better. <laughs> like You know, this is happening more and more. Um, like remote recording setups are being used for a fair amount of film soundtracks now. Like I know um, the soundtrack to, to, Mul to, to Mulan was recently, um, came, that came out, right? That soundtrack was, was I'm pretty sure, recorded entirely remotely. Um, that is so interesting because that's hard to do. <laughs> it is really hard yeah. to do, but I think if uh, the technology is to the point now that if you get a really um, competent not just, you know, merely competent, but highly competent um, yeah. mixer. I don't know what you call those people, like producer, sound it's, mixer. Yeah, I'm called sound but editor, sound mixer. Sure. Yeah, it can be done to the point where I, I don't think any human ear could tell the difference, even a professional. Um, I think if we did a blind test, like, like yeah, like I said, I mean, the, the new Mulan soundtrack, that's, that's all um, remotely recorded. I'm pretty sure um, if we looked it up, you know, I'm pretty sure a lot of the movies that came out recently, you'd be surprised to hear that none of the musicians actually, you know, came together for it um which yeah. i guess is a way of the future and you know that's it's it again it boggles the mind that that can be done that is crazy i think arts organizations the way they say successful and the way they say relevant as you said but also the way I, to some sense i think they should be is they should really be a part of their community where it feels like people have an ownership stake in it, right? Their owners aren't shareholders in the <laughs> financial Wall Street sense, but moral shareholders and financially as well with donors and contributors and stuff. That's always been the local public television model, right? right, right. There's PBS, the nationwide, right? But there's every city has their local community in San Francisco, it's KQED, it's a local public television station. And people, the reason people donate it to it and it can stay thriving and give value to the community is because people feel like they own a part of it, right? It's the community ha has a stake on it. It's not like a corporation. And so I think performing arts organizations are the same way. And it, it's more important than ever for them to remind the community of that for their survival. And doing something like this, I think is the way to do it. Absolutely. A, a virtual fundraising event 
I'm sure is great too. You can have interviews with conductors and musicians and artists and benefactors. And official podcasts. And official podcasts. (laughs) 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 Um, That's great and probably necessary, right? But I think it's really great way to actually do it and pull it off and and do it in a lasting vibrant way to do what the san francisco ballet did in this in, in this situation which is do it performing arts has always done create something that people want to see yeah or want to hear <laughs> this is what the san francisco ballet did they just did it in a digital medium you can watch on youtube but it's something that i've watched a few times and think is more beautiful with with every every viewing <laughs> Yeah, and do it, and don't half-ass it. Do it really well, like you, like you were saying. Every single, it's it really seems like every single person involved in this really cares and is also highly competent. You know, it's it's so refreshing to be, you know, even if it's just something that's like six minutes long or however long this is. You know, it's so refreshing to be to be in the presence of people who uh, know what the hell they're doing and and like care about it. You know, because so much so much of the media that we consume is just uh, it's just made by people who have no idea what they're doing at all yeah it's it's half-assed and incompetent one one of my favorite schreeder quotes <laughs> one one of my favorite schreeder quotes it, it was also when we were talking about ballet because you're someone who um doesn't know a ton about ballet let's right say. i mean not ballet music but the ballet the dance and the, art the actual form. ballet part of I, it. yeah no yeah the, the ballet part of ballet yeah <laughs> and so yeah, no, we were saying something about this, or I was saying something about this great ballet performance, because I've always been in, in, into ballet quite a bit. I always grew up going to ballets and watching my sister, and mm. and my trumpet teacher in high school was in the SF Ballet Orchestra, and uh, my roommate at Greg College was in the <laughs> ballet department. So I've always been around ballet in so many ways. And anyway, I sent this to you, or I sent some, I sent some other ballet thing to you a while ago, and I said, oh... It's really great, you know. I'm sure you'll like it, even though you may not know a ton about ballet. And and you had a great reply. You said something like, "We all know greatness when we see it because we're constantly surrounded by mediocrity at best." <laughs> yeah. What makes this video again so good, more than just the idea behind it, which is all already great, as we've been hammering it out, but just everybody here is world class at what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, and you can tell from the first second. It's impossible to um, to like put your finger on it, but when you you know when you see it, right? Like the the sort of hook in is immediate. There's never a time when something great doesn't catch you, like in the first second or two, you know. Sure, sure. Or maybe there yeah. is, but no. uh, I can't. But no, but right, yeah. a great a great comedian, a great a great movie, right? Yeah, yeah. you usually know pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> almost instantly. I, I don't know why. I wonder if it's just. You know, I, 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 I think our intuitions are stronger than we than we give credit for. Um, and a mm. lot of times I think people people want try to they think of overriding their intuitions by like thinking. Uh, I'm obviously a huge fan of thinking, but I don't think people give their intuitions enough credit. Yeah, no, agreed, agreed. So, yeah. And the reason this is additionally 
reason this is also relevant is oh yeah that, that. yeah we yeah, 20 <laughs> minutes later the segue happens <laughs> yeah that's right nice <laughs> so again bernard herman one of the great composers ever we could say right i mean yeah. he, he did the score for uh, vertigo uh this little movie psycho that you may have heard of, <laughs> may have heard of um did the score for the day the earth stood still which is what we talked about in i think our second episode on film music with yeah, the use yeah. of the theremin yeah so but yeah he was a great collaborator um the day the earth stood still isn't hitchcock but the first two were and a few more hitchcock films he did but he was a great collaborator with alfred hitchcock and i always found that director composer collaboration really interesting like spielberg and williams uh Chris Nolan, Hans Zimmer, Alfred Hitchcock, Bernard Herrmann. But what's what's so beautiful, or what's so cool about his score for Vertigo here, and specifically this section of music from the big score that is Vertigo, what's so cool is you can clearly hear Wagner in this, which I'm sure you picked up on instantly, right? It, yeah, totally. It, it sounds like a mix between Wagner's overture from Tristan and Isolde, And also um, the overture to Lohengrin. I was thinking about that and I listened to it again. I'm like, oh yeah, there's there's the Tristan chord, right? Um, which for those who are not aware, uh, the Tristan chord is kind of one, it's a chord that, that what actually is the Tristan chord? <laughs> it's a, it's a, uh, the, the relevant thing is that it's, it's an augmented fourth, augmented sixth, and an augmented ninth above the bass note. That's, that's the part that's important. Right, and it right. gives you a half-diminished seventh chord yeah. in various inversions and sorts of it can pop up in. But, but interesting, so um, throughout the whole Wagner opera of Tristan and Isolde, and also beautiful music, I mean, the overture to Tristan is gorgeous. It's, it's so lush um, and great. But yeah, but this chord is kind of, instead of a theme or an, uh, a passage or a rhythm, Wagner uses this chord as a way and a tool to develop the, the music throughout the whole piece. And this exact chord keeps popping up in this scene from Vertigo in the Bernard mm -hmm. Herrmann score. And so I was curious about it too. And I looked online, there's a, someone did a score analysis in real time to the music of this scene from Vertigo. And it's really well done. And they point out all the nuances and where the Tristan chords appear, how the harmonies are reflecting Wagner. But anyway, we can link to that as well because it's, you'd probably find it really interesting. I'm sure I would, yeah, too. yeah. Um, you, should, you should send it to me. Yeah, so, but um, but it's funny. It, it just sounds 
it sounds so much like the Orchard of Tristan in not only its harmony, but also its orchestration and the, its use of strings and building up and things. Yeah, I, I think the, the Lohengrin connection is also uh, an astute one. The, the way the strings sort of um, hover, almost sort of detached from the situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the beginning, you know, um, that, right, that, is very, right. that is very Lohengrin-esque. Yeah, just kind of floating out there. It's not, it, it, it doesn't feel grounded yet. My teacher, Jean, would, he, one of the questions that he would always ask in lessons is, where does the music start? And, you know, I always oh, found that a, huh. a peculiar way of thinking about it. But um, I think that that hits on hits on something like this. You know, when does the music start in, in this scene? It's not when the strings come in. It's not the beginning of the piece. Yeah. The, new, the actual music starts somewhere else. But um, ah, interesting. The, the strings That's are just sort of floating. Like I said, they're, they're detached from the situation. Interesting, interesting. It's sort of yeah, there, yeah. like it's almost like the curtain drawn. You know, they're they're not they're not really implicated in the music making yet. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. Yeah, yeah, and also this scene in the movie Vertigo um, is a really poignant and like important. I won't, no spoilers, but yeah, it's a really important scene in the film. So uh, it's great in so many ways. Great in so so yeah. many ways. So, anyways, yeah. I'm glad you liked the video. Uh, that's a, that's a it was one. really cool. Thanks for sending it to me. It's something that I never would have found on my own. So yeah, um, so yeah. I appreciate that. It only has yeah. fourteen thousand views. Come on, people. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's, on, let's, let's get the ITL squad up in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Battle stations. <laughs>